Move Forward Radio is brought to you by ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. You've heard the expression, no pain, no gain. When it comes to physical activity, that statement is way too simplistic, especially for people with conditions that cause chronic pain. A more accurate, if a lot less catchy way to put it might be, you can gain even with pain. Conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, and chronic neck and low back pain needn't prevent people from being physically active. Even with the challenges of a pandemic that has closed gyms and schools, movement is essential for children and adults with and without pain. Our guests in this episode share how best to keep chronic pain from limiting physical activity and describe the benefits of such activity to overall health. Also, they explain how physical therapists can help people of all ages reduce their chance of developing pain, manage its effects, and lead an active, healthful, and full life. Our guests share the stories of patients who thrive despite pain issues that threaten to sideline them. Here's our conversation with Nancy Durbin, Marie Bement, and Dana Daly. Thanks to all of you, uh, Nancy, uh, Marie, and uh, Dana, for uh, joining us for this discussion today. You're here to discuss something that can be very challenging for many people, pain. More specifically, we'll be talking about how physical activity is intertwined with pain and looking at that from several perspectives, including people's fear that exercise will cause or increase pain, what to do if that happens, and also the role of physical activity in preventing and reducing pain for people of various ages and with a variety of chronic conditions. I should note first that each of you are experts on the interplay of physical activity with pain science uh, and the central role that physical therapy and physical therapists can and should play. Among the three of you, we're well covered to discuss managing pain for people with chronic conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, uh, osteoarthritis, chronic neck pain, fibromyalgia, uh, diabetes-associated nerve pain, and, and chronic low back pain. We're going to be delving into pain in children and discuss how their potential and actual pain issues are addressed. And then finally, we'll discuss pain responses that certain types of physical activity can cause and the different ways to address those pain responses. It's a lot to cover, so (laughs) I guess without further ado, we better get started. Nancy, let's start with you by talking first about the youngest Americans, kids and even preschool-aged children. During the COVID-19 pandemic, kids mostly have been attending classes online. Uh, That's meant no recess, no walking the halls and playing on playgrounds, and playtime limitations outside of school. So, Nancy, can you start us off by talking about why it's so important that children keep moving and how physical therapists not only can help with that challenge, but with reducing the risk that kids will develop bad habits and perhaps experience pain while they're schooling at home? Eric, that's a great question and a great place to begin. It's so important, and now even more so than ever, that the well-being of our youth is addressed with them studying at home and, and sitting at computers for extended amount of time. And it's, it's so important for the, the whole well-being and the development of a child for all of their mind, body, and, and their spirit, for all the development and well-being of this um, person. So when we talk about why it's important to move, it is for the well-being and development. And when we talk about how they develop physically. Children need to move because it helps to develop bone health, muscle strength, endurance, helps with their coordination and balance, their heart health, and helps to fight off 
future diseases such as diabetes, helps to improve their weight management and improve their energy. And that's just their body. When we talk about their mind and why it's important for children to move, it's so important for their cognition, their thinking, their learning and understanding, and their overall brain development. They need to move to do that helps to increase their concentration, which is really important when they're studying at home, right? They have to move to keep focused and concentrating. And then lastly, for the well-being and development of, of youth um, to develop their spirit, it's so important that activity and exercise reduces depression, anxiety, and, and it also enhances their mood so it makes them happier while they are studying at home. So I think it's kind of funny when you say, you know, that some kids are actually walking less. I've had a few patients that have said, I'm walking more. Um, they're actually attending, going back. Some are attending school and going back. And um, it, it's kind of interesting because they have one-way hallways. So they're walking mm -hmm. completely around the school to get to, a classroom that's right behind them or the next classroom over. So I, I applaud that. I think that's great. That gets them <laughs> up and, and moving a little bit. But the struggle is, is real right now for all of us, not just youth and children that are studying at home, but adults too. We're sitting at desks. We need to make sure that our workstations are adequately adjusted. And this is so important when we're talking about kids and kids studying at home because you know, the whole world can stop, but kids will keep growing. Right. So we need to make sure that their workstation grows with them. So to help them not develop bad habits or bad posture that they can carry through to adulthood, we do need to make sure that their chair height is the right height, their desk height, we're supporting their neck, their feet are on the floor, screen height is a good height. These are all good reminders for adults as well. We don't want anybody hunching over, looking down and, you know, ending up with neck pain and, and low back pain. So it's right. really important to start all of this young and get their good habits early. And, and, and engendering those types of habits are things that, uh, that physical therapists can help with, right? Oh, absolutely. So I have, my patients will send me actually pictures of themselves at home and I will make suggestions for their workstation and then also suggest that they do take breaks. They need to. They need to set their phone. They need to set timers to get up and move so that they you know, are promoting health and wellness while they're studying. Mm -hmm. Well, Nancy, I understand that the, uh, the CDC has uh, fiscal activity guidelines for, for preschool age children. Can you talk a little bit about those? and the importance of developing a good physical activity and pain avoidance habits very early in life. Yes, so the CDC actually has physical activity suggestions and guidelines for preschoolers, as young as three and five-year-olds. Let's start early. I think it's great. These preschoolers should be you know, active throughout their whole day, but with a, a variety of, of activities. And again, when students are learning at home, they're not having the opportunity to actually participate in sports. So you know, the CDC has guidelines as well for adolescents. And when we're talking about um, children and adolescents, that's ages 6 to 17. And it's being suggested that they actually move 
60 minutes every day. And with them not attending school and sports being canceled, you know, we're going to need to actually schedule this. And you know, physical therapists can recommend great kinds of activities for the, the children to participate in. What's interesting is there was a large study that was conducted in 2017 that looked at 7,000 plus children between the ages of 13 and 19. And the study concluded that actually moderate activity was associated with less neck, shoulder, and back pain in children. And that endurance activities also had a positive effect. Now, these, this study was done in, in Norway, so the uh, positive um, endurance activity was actually cross-country skiing. But the CDC, going back to the, the guidelines that the CDC uh, suggests, is that the children participate in 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity. And when you're thinking about moderate to vigorous, moderate would be if you think about activity, activity scale from 1 to 10 with one being sitting on the couch and 10 hiking up a hill with a weighted backpack or being chased by a bear. Um, <laughs> yes, moderate activity would be considered um, what they would rate like a five to six. And vigorous. I, I think if I was being chased by a bear, my, my activity would be more than moderate. <laughs> well, right. So that 10 um, <laughs> is being chased by a bear or, or hiking up a hill. So, okay. so one is sitting on the couch and 10 is hiking up a hill with a weighted backpack or being chased by a bear. Mm -hmm. So moderate would be considered, you know, a, a five to six. And um, vigorous would be a seven to eight. So the CDC says that you should have 60 minutes of differing kind of activities, um, aerobic muscle strengthening and bone strengthening activities. But for 60 minutes at a moderate to vigorous level every day. When, you, when you're talking about preschool-aged children, though, uh, Nancy, uh, what kind of activities are we talking about that might be appropriate for that very young population? Oh, sure. Preschoolers. Um, what's interesting for them for cardiovascular um, conditioning would be taking a brisk walk, walking, playing tag, playing all kinds of games, catch, riding a scooter, um, swimming, you know, all of those kinds of um, mm -hmm. activities would be considered, you know, a um, moderate intensity aerobic activity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask you about uh, so-called, uh, quote-unquote, growing pains and, and other pain causes in, in kids. Uh, Nancy, most, most uh, parents don't expect their children to experience much pain outside of maybe freak accidents and injuries. But when we're talking about growing pains, from your perspective as a physical therapist, what are those? I mean, it, it's more than just a kind of a general term. I mean, there are, there are certain symptoms and manifestations. And, and, um, and can you talk about what things might indicate a child is feeling uh, a pain that should be assessed by a medical professional like a physical therapist? That's a great question, Eric, because a lot of people will refer to their child as, oh, they just have growing pains. And right. you're right, it's kind of a misconception and a misnomer. It's been, that term has been used for over 200 years. <laughs> but it really reflects a child that's between ages 4 and 14 that would have, they would report pain in the evening in 
both legs that then resolves in the morning. There's no fever that's associated with it. There's no inflammation. You know, the pain is in the legs, not in the joints. And it's really what we call self-limiting. And it, it resolves by the morning. So the warning signs would be if a child has a fever, if their pain is one-sided and not both-sided, like it's not both legs, it's, it's just one leg, if there's any joint swelling, if there's stiffness in the morning, um, if they, again, have had a fever, weight loss, unexplained weight loss, fatigue, they're just not feeling well, those are those red flags or, you know, stop signs that would say to you as a, as a parent, you know what, I think that I need to get this checked out. Um, what, what could be involved could be if there's um, swelling, fever, pain, stiffness, um, there could be an arthritic issue that, that is underlying. There could be an infection, trauma. Um, there could be an overuse injury. And you know, worst case can, scenario, there could be um, a neoplasm or a tumor. So if it goes beyond the evening and doesn't resolve in the morning and is persistent, but then also has those other signs and symptoms, then you definitely need to go to a healthcare professional and, and have that checked out. Are they called growing pains, quote unquote, because they, they have to do with the, with a child's uh, physical development basically as they mature? Actually, that's the misconception because it doesn't really actually reflect that someone's growing. It's just that their legs are aching. So it has nothing to do with growing or with inflammation. Interesting. Well, um, uh, I next want to talk to Marie a little bit. Um, Marie, you've done a great deal of research on the, on the mechanisms of pain, which is to say essentially how pain works and the best ways to address it, and, and particularly with regard to chronic pain. Can you give us a, a brief primer on pain mechanics, uh, including the broad range of pain responses and the effects that physical activity can have on a person? Yes. Thank you, Eric. Um, yes, it, it is true. There's lots of recent evidence looking at the interventions in physical therapy and how do they work. This is also true for exercise, in part because of our shift to more evidence-based medicine. And, and first, I'll talk about some of the basic science research, really looking at what is going on at the cellular level. And when we think about this, it's important to realize that within the body, we have different pain systems. We have a pain system that facilitates pain, so there, there um, is an enhancement of pain, and we also have systems that inhibit pain. And both of these are very important. With chronic pain, we tend to have greater sensitivity in the, the pain-facilitating system and the pain-inhibiting system tends to be less efficient or less effective. And what we know from exercise research, again, really kind of basic science animal research, is that exercise can change gene expression. And what this means is the propane genes can be lessened with exercise and the, the genes that are involved with pain inhibition can increase. So that's one, uh, one potential mechanism. Another one is the immune system. Many people with chronic pain, we know they have systemic low-grade inflammation. So this could be part of the pathology of chronic pain. 
Now, we also know that exercise can stimulate the immune system. Um, this would produce anti-inflammatory cellular responses. And therefore, with physical activity, the balance between pro-inflammatory cytokines is what we call them, and anti-inflammatory cytokines, they shift to less inflammation. So again, inflammation is part or one of the mechanisms. And finally, I really want to emphasize that exercise can also improve mental health um, and really overall psychological well-being. I know Nancy touched on this a little bit, but some of the research looking at physical activity worldwide, especially with this pandemic, uh, some of the research is showing a decrease um, up to 30% in the step counts. Um, therefore, it's not only important from a chronic pain standpoint, but we can also incorporate physical activity to help with some of those mental health um, and psychological issues that we may be experiencing throughout this pandemic. And, and movement and physical activity, really, as, as, you, as you have indicated, they, they really can work to, to decrease pain in people with, with chronic conditions like arthritis, like neck pain, like, like low back pain, right? Absolutely. There's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of studies showing the benefits of exercise training and, and helping people with a variety of chronic pain conditions, and, and including all of the ones you mentioned um, that we would lump under the, the chronic musculoskeletal pain. So um, there's even actually reviews of systematic reviews to give you an idea of, of how much um, evidence or, or research that, that has really looked at this. And as you mentioned too earlier, is that we know that exercise training is extremely beneficial, but we also know that when people first start exercising, there can be a lot of variability in the pain response. And what I mean by that is we'll have people with fibromyalgia come into the laboratory and do a very low intensity muscle contraction. So it's about one fourth of their strength. We have them work that arm muscle for about 10 minutes. And interestingly, about of the third of the people with fibromyalgia will have a decrease in pain. A third of the people will have an increase in pain and a third will have no change in pain. And this is why it's really important that we think about individually tailored or patient-centered physical therapy. Because what we're doing is we're trying to identify why do some people have an increase in pain while others have a decrease in pain. And from our perspective, we're looking at it really from the biopsychosocial model of pain. And as most physical therapists know, that when people are experiencing pain, there's biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors that interplay. And we know also that exercise can impact all three of those categories. For example, from a biological standpoint, we look at body composition. Um, this would be, um, for example, lean mass. We've shown that people who have greater lean mass, um, their pain inhibitory pathways are more efficient so they work better. Our body works better at turning off pain. That would be one example. Um, I've already talked about some of the psychosocial examples, how exercise can improve mental health, but some of those would be like fear avoidance behaviors, pain catastrophizing, stress, and anxiety, and, and whatnot. And what I mean by patient-centered is not everybody with chronic pain will have fear avoidance behaviors. But if they do, then we need to keep probing and keep asking questions. For example, is it all physical activity or is it a specific type of physical activity? If they're having problems with doing laundry, is it putting clothes in the washer? Is it lifting up the basket? What part of that physical activity is problematic? And then we can proceed from there. Is it, because it's really not one size fits all. It, 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 it's very, it's very um, uh, idiosyncratic. Absolutely. And, and just like pain, it's very comprehensive. 
you know, again, there's biological factors, psychological, social factors, and these all come into play very differently between you and me, as well as the person sitting in front of us. So that's why it's really important to, to really identify those different factors and realize it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So, Marie, what, what role do, uh, do physical therapists and the interventions they use, uh, in, including something called TENS, play in instances in which physical activity causes an increase in pain? Um, so we don't quite understand. Again, that's what we're trying to identify in the laboratory, which of those factors come into play. And I don't think there's just one. Again, mm-hmm. that really goes back to that patient-centered approach. But definitely there are a number of people with chronic pain where they say, I can't exercise, it hurts. Or when I start exercising, it makes my fibromyalgia worse. So really from a physical therapy standpoint, we need to back up a little bit. We have to explain to our patients or our clients, when you first start exercising, it may hurt a little bit. But there are things that we can do to address that. Number one, hurt does not equal harm. Um, It could just be working that muscle again. Mm -hmm. Um, It's short term. I like to talk about the resources, so a lot of patient education. And I'll have people read the abstracts. You know, when you think about the Cochrane reviews, there's lay language summary, and I will show these individuals this is the evidence. Also, dosing. You know, when we think about what are the recommendations for physical activity, typically we think of 150 minutes of moderate physical activity and two strength training sessions. But again, with chronic pain, it may not have to be the same dose for pain relief. For example, there's several studies showing that walking can be beneficial. Um, so again, that's lower intensity. Um, that can think about, uh, again, think about biologically. It can help with our body composition. Psychologically, it can improve our well-being. And socially, you can walk with a family member or, or walk with a friend. So I do really want to emphasize that exercise is systemic, and you don't have to start exercising the, the painful body part. You can, for example, if you have shoulder pain, you can exercise your legs, and you should be able to get systemic pain relief. I was, I was just going to say, I do want to emphasize that those Cochrane reviews are pretty reader-friendly because I uh, am not a, a science or math person in any way, and I've certainly benefited from them. Absolutely, and they, they really do have a lay language summary, and um, whenever I have I, – I, people like homework, and, and then what I do is I'm, I'll say, this is what you're going to do before your next PT treatment. Read this three times and ask me three questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I always kind of follow up and they know I'm going to follow up. So they can't just kind of throw it on their, their car seat, or maybe they read it right before physical therapy again. And, and I'm fine with that. Um, but I also want to point out as physical therapists, we have a pain toolbox. When people say something hurts, we can do things about this. Um, again, talk about patient education, talk about exercising or first start exercising with non-painful body parts, but also we have supplemental therapy, and this would be the TENS unit. And I should point out Dana, who is, is on this podcast, she's actually done a lot of research on TENS and physical activity, so I would, I would follow up with Dana. But basically, Dana Daly and Kathleen Suka have shown tremendous research that TENS can help with movement, evoke pain, as well as fatigue. I don't think TENS should be the primary treatment, but if you're doing physical activity, there's absolutely supplemental treatments that we can do as physical therapists. Marie, just so people who aren't familiar with the terminology will know, what does TENS stand for? It's a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulator. So it's just a a little, it almost looks like a box of cards, and there's electrodes that you can put on uh, different body parts. And and typically, they recommend a a higher intensity stimulus um, to maximize those benefits. 
And again, I really do want to defer to Dana because she is actually doing this, this research. Well, and, and Dana is actually the next person I want to talk to. So I'm going to ask you a question, Dana, but then if you also want to uh, diverge onto, onto discussing what, what Marie just talked about, feel free. But the question I wanted to ask you, Dana, is a big part of your clinical focus has been on chronic pain associated with fibromyalgia. Uh, so for listeners who aren't familiar with that condition, can you start by describing what fibromyalgia is and then talk about the issues it poses when it comes to engaging in physical activity? Thank you, Eric. Um, when we think about fibromyalgia, you know, it's one of those terms that came into being in around 1990. So as a formal term, it hasn't been around all that long. Um, but what we do think about fibromyalgia is it's a characteristics and some symptoms that come together to form this chronic widespread pain condition. And so that's sometimes the challenge is that it used to be rheumatologists would diagnose it, so people oftentimes thought of it in terms of an inflammatory process, but it truly is a way that your body is processing pain, referring to some of those inhibition and facilitatory practices that Marie talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, the challenge is it comes with kind of a bunch of characteristics that can really make the situation a little bit challenging. So it's associated with fatigue. We think about headache. We think about gastrointestinal problems, such as irritable bowel syndrome. Um, sleep disturbance is very common. And probably one of the things that's most bothersome for people with fibromyalgia is some memory issues. So some different difficulties with concentration, word finding, and those types of things. They actually call it fibrofog. Um, so all those things put together can make life a little bit challenging. Um, And one of the things that we find is that when you're uncomfortable, it makes sense that, you know, as a society, we learn if it hurts, don't do it. Or the way we actually should approach acute pain, which is not chronic pain, is to do some rest, some ice, some elevated. So we all learn that RICE acronym. And so what people find is some of those tools that they have are not effective when it comes to a chronic pain situation. And so when you try to add movement on top of that, makes it very difficult for people to figure out how much should I do, how much should I not do. And there's a lot of variability in how people respond to activity that Marie kind of talked about. You know, they can do an activity two days ago and they do well. They can do it today and they can hardly do it. It becomes very difficult. And then other days it can cause, it can be fine to do, but can cause some increased pain or fatigue. So there's a lot of variability, not just in the symptoms, but also to how their body responds to movement and physical activity. And a lot of it comes back to that biopsychosocial model. There are a lot of things that impact how people are feeling. It can be your mood. It can be how did you sleep last night. And so you get this cascade of symptoms that have an impact kind of overall when it comes to movement and how people feel. So from what you're saying, there, there, there is a lot of variability, but, but in general, what do research and your clinical experiences show about the benefits of various types of physical activity uh, for people with fibromyalgia? Yeah, for people, that's a great question, because for people with fibromyalgia, there's been a ton of research to investigate different types of physical activity. And so there's a lot of information about the benefit of aerobic activity. And when I say aerobic, I truly mean elevating your heart rate and your breathing rate. Because, you know, I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s when people did aerobics, per se, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm truly talking about an activity that increases your heart rate and breathing rate. Um, There's information about strengthening, about flexibility. And one of the things that works really well for a lot of people with fibromyalgia is doing aquatic exercise, so getting in a pool. And oftentimes getting in a warm pool to just do some general movement, flexibility, and walking 
But then you can also progress to a cool pool and do aerobic exercise. Um, you know, the challenge I think we all have in the field of movement and exercise that Marie kind of alluded to was how much? What's the dosing that we think of? Is it once a week, twice a week, three times a week? So oftentimes we find that even with people with fibromyalgia, even just twice a week can be beneficial to begin. And we generally try and think of 30 minutes in a day. And that 30 minutes can be broken up in five-minute increments. So it's one of those things I try and move people away from the all or none. If I can't walk 30 minutes, then I can't do my exercise Mm -hmm. today. So really starting to think about how do you get that in through the day. Um, And research shows that can be just as beneficial. And then as you get stronger and you're more comfortable, then you can build those times up and progress toward that 30 minutes. So it is one of those challenges of figuring out what works for everybody because of that variability. There are no two people who are the same and no two people are going to respond the same. And again, I imagine that's something that a physical therapist could help with, having you figure out what's, what's too much, what's perhaps in some cases not enough. Right. And I think one of the things that um, is so helpful is actually goal setting. What is it one of people want to achieve? Mm-hmm. And then we can take that apart and say, here's what might be doable for now. Let's try this. See how you respond. If you do great, we can progress more. If you don't do as great, then we'll make some changes. So not feeling so stuck in a black and white. Here's what you need to do. And you need to do this twice a week for 50 minutes or whatever is recommended by a practitioner. But really being flexible in the approach Um, One of the things, just to kind of go back to the TENS piece, in the studies that we have done, we have really looked at the impact of TENS, and we looked at resting pain, so pain when you're not doing anything, when you're on the couch, versus pain when you're actually doing an activity. And we have found that TENS can be helpful for people with both movement and resting pain. Our initial study found mostly movement pain, but our last study also found changes with resting pain. And another side benefit was fatigue. Who would have thought we can centrally impact fatigue through the use of a TENS unit? So that was very exciting. And it is something that people could do. We found in our study, even if they did TENS twice a week for 30 minutes, they got significant changes in resting pain and movement pain, which is not that long of a treatment, but it is something that surprisingly that's the minimum dose you need in order to make a change. Is TENS going to benefit anybody or are there certain, inst- certain instances in which it's, it's more likely to help? You know, we do find that there are a few people who do not benefit from TENS. It can be aggravating to both pain and fatigue. And, you know, like with any electrical stimulation device, we also have to think about precautions and contraindications in that people who should not use it, such as someone who might have a pacemaker, an implanted device, um, someone who is pregnant or planning to be pregnant, we will sometimes caution them. Um, Although people do use TENS in labor, but however, while they are pregnant, we typically don't recommend it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't recommend it across the head or across the the chest. So there are some contraindications and precautions, but a physical therapist can help you figure that out. A quick break to encourage you to move. Physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of chronic disease, not to mention improved bone health, cognitive function, weight control, and overall quality of life. Simply put, More movement is the gateway to better health. Need some help to get going? Physical therapists are movement experts who use exercise, hands-on care, and patient education to help you meet your goals. You can contact a PT directly for an evaluation. Learn more and find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. 
We've established that fiscal activity can be extremely helpful in a number of these situations, but uh, Dana, that's not the whole solution, right? Aren't there other treatments that should complement physical activity, ideally within a, a comprehensive program overseen by a physical therapist? Um, yeah, we definitely look at kind of going back to that biopsychosocial model in terms of people may have different needs and different challenges within that model so that we're looking at a lot of different things. Um, but oftentimes we think even of some of our manual techniques, we think about um, sleep hygiene and sleep disturbance is a challenge. So getting people to actually be able to go to sleep and stay asleep because oftentimes they have problems with one or both. We look at also stress management, managing your emotions and communication, because when you have difficulty with those, it just makes life more difficult. It can be more pain, more fatigue when you're challenged by those. We also think about um, looking at decreasing stress and stress management, also looking at how is it you do things at home that Marie kind of talked about. Maybe we need to adapt some things to make them less effortful um, because we do want to think about your body's response, not just in terms of pain, but fatigue and how much are you exerting, which Nancy talked to a little bit about. Um, and I also want to give people the tools to monitor it and work into independence in their self-management. My goal I always tell people is to get you addicted to exercise and to get you out of my clinic because that way I know that you can self-manage. You can call me with questions and that type of thing. But the goal is that you know you best, and so you can help figure out what things work best for you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it's always important to take a look at all those things. We look at graded exercise. We look at work modifications, a wide variety of things that we can help with, anything that kind of fits in that biopsychosocial model. So we've been we've been talking about uh, things that, uh, that that can help people, but it's been a little abstract at this point because we haven't really been talking about specific individuals and specific chronic pain uh, issues uh, that uh, that people might have. So I'd like to ask each of you uh, to share perhaps a memorable experience or two that you've had with a particular patient. I want to start with you, Nancy. Can you talk about a young patient whose pain issues were successfully addressed? Uh, with the assistance of physical therapist supervised physical activity? Oh, I would love to talk about a patient that I've helped. Um, there is a wide population of, of children with pain. And one of the most memorable patients that I treated was a 15-year-old young lady who was a golfer. And she was looking through the tall grass with her golf club for her golf ball. And hit her ankle and it really hurt. She didn't have any fracture. Um, she had a, a good bruise. Excuse but, me, hit, hit her ankle how? With her club? Yes. And okay. she was like swinging through the, the grass okay. looking, for, right. looking for her ball. She hit her ankle um, with her golf club mm -hmm. and you know, sustained a, um, a, a bone bruise, but no fracture. And she ended up then um, in a cast, um, then um, a cam boot. She was on crutches. Six months later, I saw her in our multidisciplinary pain clinic, and she was not able to walk. She had a cold, purplish, swollen foot that had little active motion and um, had burning pain. And this is the classic patient that we see with this complex regional pain syndrome. And it's a syndrome where there may be an accident or an injury, but, but that has long, long healed. And 
The nerves, though, have not healed. And the nerves still think that, that there's an injury and there's an, an active problem. So they bring pain into the brain and say, you know, there's, there's pain here. We need to protect this limb and we're not going to move it. And, you know, so then the, the brain sends down these impulses to that, that area. And again, we, we think that, as Dana said, and also Marie, you know, hurting may not be harming, but it's, it's hard because that, that foot um, that this young lady hit with her golf club was really painful, swollen. She wasn't able to even wear a sock on her foot. And to tell her there's nothing wrong, it's really hard for a patient and for a family to hear mm-hmm. when they see um, you know, that there is something wrong. But it's the pain processing that has gone wrong. So our job is to help the patient gradually return to function. And it, it is painful. And that's why we have a multidisciplinary approach. There's usually a physician, a psychologist, and a physical therapist that all work together as a team with the family. The physician helps with the medical management. The psychologist helps with pain cognitive behavioral therapy and helping with those descending pathways um, to decrease pain centrally. And then the physical therapist helps to get the patient functioning. Well, this child had not been weight-bearing on her foot for a good six months. So a gradual approach and a graded approach is absolutely necessary to make sure that you, know, you you have that fine line between doing enough but not doing too much. And we like to use aquatic therapy. So her program, her physical therapy program, included this graded approach where she did exercise in the water. She also did exercises on the land, working on her range of motion on what we call a graded motor therapy meaning that we we try to get her nerves to kind of calm down and have experiences that that are normal. So we work on desensitizing that area that is painful. And a great way to do that um, is actually with the use of TENS. I use TENS with, with children all the time. And this young lady absolutely loved her TENS unit. And it gave her the power over what she was feeling so she could feel the, the little electrical stim, the tingly prickly sensation instead mm-hmm. of the, the painful sensation. So it was, you know, a, a long process, but it was a gradual approach. And I'm happy to say that she actually went back to playing golf and back to tennis and, I think that she was a little more careful if she lost her ball in the in the tall grass. Looking. I imagine. <laughs> but she she had a, a complete recovery. Um, she did have a little setback. Um, but again, as Dana said, you know, it's our role to empower our patients and have them be able to self manage. So we give them the the tools so that if something comes up, a flare up, that then they're able to self manage and you know, get through that rough time, that little speed bump, and then continue on with their healthy way. 
Mm-hmm. Maria, I wanted to ask you the same question about uh, a, a patient or patients. Uh, m- much of your work has been in research, but earlier in your career, uh, you were a member of an interdisciplinary chronic pain team at an outpatient orthopedic clinic. Does a particular patient from that time, or perhaps one you encountered in your research, stand out as sort of an, an illustrative example of the power of physical activity to meaningfully address chronic pain and help improve uh, quality of life? Yes, actually, I love this question. It's kind of like a, a mini case study. Um, <laughs> one gentleman that comes to mind, he actually came to the clinic with a diagnosis of low back pain, like a lot of our patients. And to give you a little bit of backstory, this man was in his 50s. He was obese. He was quite sedentary. He was a high school teacher, and he talked not only about how he sat all day long, but also his stress levels. And he had been experiencing intermittent low back pain uh, for about 10 years. Mm. And gradually over the years, the, the pain was getting more intense and it was more long lasting. And so his concern that, you know, um, that it was getting more chronic uh, and that it would no longer be as intermittent. And um, what I did, you know, we did an evaluation and, and he was quite stiff and he didn't want to move because of the potential pain. So I started him off with some general back exercises, you know, the cat and camel, uh, that type of thing, just to get used to moving. We also did a little neural flossing. So he had some referred pain down his leg. So I was doing uh, basically some nerve stretching. And that was very focused exercise. But I also did a lot of patient education about decreasing his sedentary time, what he could potentially do at work that incorporates some of his exercises um, and how to move more. Uh, For example, he made a lot of copies throughout his day. Mm -hmm. And I would say, so if you have 100 copies, Uh, go to the copy machine 10 times and make 10 copies. Mm. Um, It may be less efficient for your copies, um, (laughs) copying, but it's actually going to be a lot more beneficial with with your movement. And um, also I did talk about what does he like to do for exercises? Because, you know, again, we can do this periodic movement every hour or so, but also what does he like to do? And he really struggled with this. He talked about how active he was as a young man, he was involved with a lot of sports. Um, and he also said even five years ago, he was still walking frequently with his wife. So I said, well, you know, why don't we start walking again? Um, even start 10 minutes and even three times a week. Because, he, again, he talked about how busy he was and he had, you know, Bible study on Friday. And it, it, he was just really overwhelmed by, you know, trying to increase this. So I said, again, three times a week, you pick your days and you keep with the days. Because um, I don't want it to be Sunday night and you know, like, oh, I didn't do any of my days. So I wanted him to pick specific days. And I saw him for about three weeks and he was making progress. He came about seven out of 10 pain. And when after three weeks is about four out of 10 pain. But he, he wasn't improving as much. Um, but again, I said, I've, I've done everything. I want you to keep doing the exercises. Um, think about how you can change your, your work and, and keep walking. And, and I discharged him. And, and at first, this, I struggled with this because it felt like a bit of a failure because um, his pain wasn't completely gone. But I think we also have to realize, um, even as part of our patient education, if you have back pain for 10 years, you know, the idea that you're going to exercise for a week or two and, and, and have it be down to zero it isn't right. realistic. Um, and, and there's actually a good ending because I, I, what was really surprising to me is about three months later after discharge, uh, they said, you have a 
patient in the waiting room who wants to talk to you. And, and I was like, okay, <laughs> that can be either good or bad. <laughs> and um, it was him. It was him. He's like, uh-huh. I just wanted you to know I am pain-free. I've been pain-free for a month. I walk every night with my wife. Um, I just feel amazing. I still do my exercises um, every day. And, it's, and I want to point out these exercises that I gave him three to five minutes. That I, I didn't give him uh-huh. this huge amount of exercises. It takes three to five minutes. Um, and again, I just, I, I really think that's important to realize that this is a process. And I will point out, I did say, if you want to come back for a booster session, we can progress those to more strengthening exercises because not only do we want to think about pain management with our physical activity, but overall function. You know, that's what we do as physical therapists. Right. And as we age, you know, we have sarcopenia. So we have a decrease in muscle mass. So um, not only am I interested in pain management, but again, he was, in, you know, in his 50s, I wanted to progress and incorporate some of those strengthening exercises. So it was, it was really exciting to see someone to progress to that level. So uh, Dana, I want to talk to you next. You, you've undoubtedly witnessed many instances in your clinical practice of people with fibromyalgia who have been hesitant to move much, but who've found acti- physical activity to, to be transformative in some way. Does, does a particular patient come to mind? Yeah, it's always wonderful to see a patient succeed. Um, I think of a patient who had, she was probably in her mid-40s. She had been off work for 18 months which, you know, as we think about people who've been off work, if you've been off work more than a year, the likelihood goes down significantly that you can go back to work. But she had fibromyalgia. She also had some other comorbidities, some other illnesses working against her. She was obese. Um, and she had had fibromyalgia probably for 20 years. So this, she had had this significant flare-up, wasn't able to go to work, wasn't able to do a lot of different things. And she had kids at home she needed to take care of, and she wasn't able to do that. Um, Her walking tolerance was maybe 100 feet. And this is a case of, I was working in a facility that shared space with cardiac rehab. So our offices were a good 100 yards from the front door of the clinic. And she only got maybe 10 feet inside the door and had to sit down. And so we actually did our PT evaluation right there at a a table because she couldn't really go any farther. So she had significant functional limitations. Mm -hmm. And so it took a while. I mean, she was in therapy for six to eight months, but she actually was able to go back to work full time. And we worked on a combination. So it's never just one type of physical activity. We worked on some strengthening. We worked on some aerobic exercise. We worked on aquatic exercise, which ended up being one of the best things that she could ever do. She was able to get her heart rate up. She was able to progress, but also feel better. And if she wasn't in the pool, she didn't feel as well. But she was sleeping better. Her cognition was a little bit better. Pain levels were better. You know, the challenge is, I can honestly say, we did not get rid of her pain. But we actually, she was able to get to where she could manage her pain. And the fact that she could go back to work, because she really was kind of looking down the face of having to be on disability and not returning to work at that point. And so then there were all these emotional issues to deal with, too. But she made great strides in physical therapy and was able to meet her goals and accomplish what she wanted to and return to work. You, you talk about emotional issues. Um, I, I guess you have to kind of be a psychologist to, to, to a certain extent where with, with not only that patient, but with all your patients and kind of figure out uh, what's going to be motivating and make sure that they understand that this is a process. It is, you know, and it's challenging because sometimes emotions, people sometimes 
you know, there's sometimes anger, there's sometimes anxiety, there's sometimes depression, there's sometimes fear, because they don't know what's coming. Because if this is my life now, what's it going to be like 10 years from now? A question I get asked a lot, am I going to be in a wheelchair when it comes to fibromyalgia? Because the pain is so intense and the activities are so limited. And I just try to reassure people that is very rarely the outcome Mm -hmm. that we see. The other thing I always try and impart to my patients is physical activity and movement doesn't always have to be exercise training. Not to forget to do the leisure things that are fun. Mm -hmm. Take a walk for fun, not for 30 minutes of time and monitoring your heart rate and your breathing rate. But bowl, um, do a bike ride, do things for fun, because that can be sometimes the thing that people cut out first because it is fatiguing and they don't feel like they have the energy or it's too painful. So making sure we put fun back in the equation, I think, is always very important. And, and any amount of physical activity, I would imagine, on some level is better better than no physical activity. You bet. So um, let's let's conclude with some words of advice for, for our listeners, uh, drawing from uh, the three of you, your expertise and your hands-on experience. Um, and I'm going to reverse the order this time. So, Dana, I know that we just talked, but now I want to ask you, what would you like to advise people to do to best ensure that they engage in physical activity safely and in ways that reduce pain, risk, or severity, whether or not they have a chronic condition, but particularly in that instance? Um, I think, you know, the first part is some education and some goal setting. Figure out what it is you want to accomplish, what you're hoping to do. You know, if it's to have fun, then do those fun things. I think also, too, goal setting and writing it down just seems to make it happen a little bit better. We know that that's true about a lot of different behavior changes because with physical activity and people who aren't doing it, it is truly a behavior change that we're asking for. So I always ask, you know, how much time can you give me for exercise every day? How much are you willing to do? And what do you like to do? Because if you don't like the exercise, why would you do it? I mean, that's just an exercise in torture. So. I always look at those things that they have to like it. It has to be interesting to them and they have to find value in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marie, can I ask you the same question and, and ask you uh, what, what advice that you would, you would have? Absolutely. And I have a very similar response as Dana and that I think patient education is key uh, again, not only with, with dosing and, and the different types of exercise, but, but expectations and, and what does potential pain with, physical activity mean, um, as well as the supplemental treatments such as the TENS unit. And I do really want to emphasize do what you like. Again, I'm just emphasizing when Dana talked about make exercise fun. Get to the point where you'll miss that exercise. I like to ask my patients, what did you like to do as a kid? What did you love? What are some of your fondest memories as a kid? Um, And they'll talk about biking or they'll talk about swimming. And I'm like, why don't, let's start there. Again, let's make this enjoyable. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of times people think of physical activity as as hurting or as torture. So I think early success is is key. Right. I mean, there's a difference between physical activity and exercise that you're doing because you feel like you have to do it. Right. So Nancy, do you have anything to add to what your colleagues have shared? You know, they've hit on so many great points. And I agree. Trying to think back to what you like to do as a kid, I have the privilege of actually doing that with kids. So that's one reason I love to work with with kids and then to help them get back into doing what kids are supposed to be doing, being out there playing, having fun, making good memories. And I would also echo what my colleagues said. 
I have the privilege of being able to start early educating our youth about the benefits of moving and being active. And that's so important because I feel like this is where you could cue up the Beatles song, Imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a big thinker and I look at it and I go, you know, I'd like to think of big analogies and big things. And so I, I feel like, you know, if we could just imagine what it would be like if we had a nation of healthy, active youth, what a, a positive skill this would be for them to carry into adulthood and, and how great it is that we as physical therapists have the opportunity to influence and inspire the health of someone and inspire the future, their well-being in respect to their body, mind, and spirit. And I just feel like that is the greatest gift that physical therapists can give to their patients. Well, and, and, and along that same line with that same theme, imagine imagine what healthcare would look like if people were actually actively participating in their own uh, physical well-being. I love that thought. <laughs> and, and, and if people were doing that, I, I guess our, our healthcare system would, would, would look quite different if people were uh, actively participating in their own, in their own care in, in, in that manner. That would be a good thing. Uh, Nancy, at the beginning of uh, your answer, you talked about uh, what you loved doing as a kid. Uh, What did you love doing uh, physically as a kid, and uh, how does your work now kind of uh, allow you to uh, continue that? Well, um, I loved to do gymnastics. I actually don't do gymnastics anymore, but if a child reaches a goal that they've set, or an accomplishment, then I'll do a cartwheel in the clinic. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think about, you know, carefree, being able to move and run and just have you know, the wind blowing through your, your hair and just being carefree, you know, climbing trees. I used to climb trees a lot. My mom would look out the second floor window um, and see me eye to eye because I'd be up in the, <laughs> up in the tree. And, As Marie said, you know, bike riding. We used to bike all the time and bike to school and bike home and bike to the pool and swim all day. If kids could get back into being more active and and take time away from the the video games, um, I think that there would be a, a lot less chronic problems that we would have to address in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Marie, I wanted to it's kind of ask you the same question. Uh, uh, how good do you feel you are at practicing what you preach in, in terms of uh, getting sufficient physical activity? I should point out, I just ordered a treadmill desk because when I talk about that gentleman who I saw who sat all day long, I am now in academia. I, I work at Marquette University and my physical activity when I was a practicing physical therapist versus now has drastically changed. I do. Mm-hmm. I sit a lot of my day and I have a long commute. And although I do meet the recommendations, um, regardless, I still have a lot of sedentary time. So I do struggle with um, taking frequent breaks and, and knowing that I, I do feel better when I move. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially now with COVID, um, you know, thinking back to what I like to do as a kid, I love playing softball with my dad and my sisters. And when I think about all the activities, it was always very social. Therefore, now for me to help run, I run with a friend. And it's, it's seriously like a mini therapy session. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So I really have strong social factors um, that help me to promote my physical activity throughout the day. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to also do walking meetings, although now with social distancing, that that can be difficult, but that's something that I've tried to incorporate with my graduate students and other people. It's like, let's go walk and talk, Uh you know? Yeah. I don't do that currently, but um, once we're back to um, less guidelines, we'd we'd pick that up again. Dana, uh, same question to to you. Along with Marie and kind of what Nancy said, you know, the challenges, I too have moved into academics and research and I have a long commute to get to my research facility. And so I do sit quite a bit, but I have incorporated a standing desk at work. And it's one of those challenges that I know the difference that I sleep better when I exercise. And so I can honestly say I don't miss too many days in terms of doing exercise simply because I feel better and I can find myself getting cranky if I don't do my exercise. And so the challenge that I struggle with is doing it for fun. You know, I do it because I know I need to and it's good for me. But really trying to do those things for fun, that's what I miss with COVID right now. Mm -hmm. You know, to go for a walk or to meet someone and do something fun, play a game of tennis, just doesn't happen now because of COVID. So it's a challenge. So that's kind of where I'm at in terms of physical activity at the moment. So, uh, well, listen, thank you all so much, the three of you, for your, for your time and sharing your expertise with us today um, on Move Forward Radio. Uh, we appreciate your insights in, uh, on how to optimize pain-free movement and activity, and um, just thank you very much, all, all three of you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or find previous episodes at ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com.